morning. So um, it's very nice to um, meet all of you and to see your Zendo. And um, Konjin and I, Konjin san and I have followed very much the same path. We've both been to Tasahara and we've both been to Hoshinji in Japan. So uh, we're sort of bonded in that way. Um, I always feel kind of connected with her. In fact, I think the Roshi there um, kind of saw us almost as the same person. Because the last time I went back to Hoshinji, he seemed a little bit confused about who I was. And I think he thought I was her. So um, that's nice. <laughs> that's a nice connection. So recently I've been talking um, because it's the new year and because I'm very interested in this subject uh, about uh, a practice, which is a practice of Thich Nhat Hanh's called Beginning Anew. And just to give you a little bit of history, um, I uh, first encountered um, the what is essentially um, this beginning a new practice is essentially a, a full moon ceremony. You probably do a, some kind of husatsu ceremony at your temple. And um, the first time that I ever did the husatsu ceremony, which is full moon, I was at <clears throat> San Francisco Zen Center. And it was actually, I met Katagiri Roshi at Green Gulch. And so I was in San Francisco at the time. and. Uh, I didn't really want to get into Zen, but somehow I was drawn in by um, meeting with Katagiri Roshi. And <clears throat> so I was at San Francisco Zen Center for this. Um, actually, it was Ryaku Fusatsu, which means uh, an abbreviated um, full moon ceremony. And I had no idea what was going on at all. And for uh, several years, I must say that I never understood the, the point of the um, Fusatsu ceremony. And even when I was at Tassahara, I even um, led the chanting, and I still didn't know what it was all about. And I think one of the things that hung me up was um, that it's often referred to as a repentance ceremony. So I, I carried with me for a long time the question of what is repentance? I uh, grew up in the Catholic Church, and I was very, very devout Catholic. And um, I, so my reference for um, repentance was confession, which in a sense, essentially it is, but um, I also uh, carry, it also carries with it in the Catholic Church, the idea of um, penance, that somehow repentance um, includes doing some kind of penance. Now, the penance that we received when we went to confession wasn't a big deal, but, um, you know, we just had to say some prayers. But <clears throat> just the whole uh, spirit of penance kind of penetrated my brain. And so it was difficult for me to think about repentance without um, kind of beating myself up and wanting some feeling that I needed to um, do some kind of penance to repent. But um, 
<clears throat> so when I was at Hoshinji, it came up big time. All of my questions just rose to the surface when I was at Hoshinji Monastery. Uh, and this was the this was one of them. And so I was just going around talking to everybody. What does repentance mean in Buddhism? What does repentance mean in Buddhism? And nobody could really give me a straight answer. Everybody seemed to know except me, but um, I couldn't I couldn't kind of figure it out for a long time. And finally, uh, someone said something, and I don't even know what this person said, but all of a sudden I sort of got it that. Repentance is simply to acknowledge, to recognize and acknowledge those things uh, which uh, are obstacles to our own freedom. Um, Shohaku uh, talked about it. It's called Sange uh, in Japanese. Sange Japanese, I guess it's Japanese. He said it's to recognize and say publicly. So it's like a confession. But in the word sangha, it's not just telling or speaking, but it's something that happens in our mind to recognize I made a certain mistake. And we have some feeling there. And that is to repent or regret. And so he uses the word confession, which is... um, also kind of a buzzword for us us former Catholics. But to confess really means, like he says, to tell uh, and to to speak. And this goes back to um, Buddha's Sangha in India. Uh, He, uh, at least the word, the the story is that he would have monthly, um, you know, full moon, uh, gatherings and that they would speak to, uh, they would each acknowledge something that they'd done that um, that might that creates harm for others. This is this is more of a recognition of ways in which we uh, hurt others. I'm gonna close this. All these little noises that come in on our computers, and uh, and so this was what, this has been carried out in all traditions of Buddhism, in one way or another. Um, and a few years ago, I went to a monastics gathering at Land of Medicine Buddha, and it was monastics from all different um, traditions, from uh, Theravadan. There were some Theravadan practitioners, um, monks and nuns there. There were some uh, Tibetan um, uh, monks and nuns there. And uh, a few of us Zen folks, most Zen people don't identify as monastics, so uh, they don't show up at these kinds of things. But it so happened it was a five-day conference or gathering. It's called a gathering. And um, right in the middle of the week, on Wednesday was uh, the full moon. So people were kind of saying, when we were figuring out what we were going to be doing, they were kind of saying, well, Wednesday is the full moon, so we we have to um, have time to do our full moon ceremony. And we ended up deciding to do the full moon ceremony together, each one of us bringing something from our own tradition. 
And one of the uh, things that was uh, suggested by uh, one of the Tibetan monks was something that they do at um, it's Gampo Abbey in, in Nova Scotia. He says they, they do a ceremony called setting aside, which I think is a, a very helpful way to look at uh, the practice of repentance and what the point of repentance is. Um, several years ago, we did, uh, and we're going to be doing this again next year, Jukai uh, at Zenchuji Temple in um, Los Angeles. And uh, as we went through the ceremony, it was a, a Jukai ceremony, a precept ceremony, but it was a huge precept ceremony. And it wasn't just the ceremony, it was uh, a teaching a teaching practice. And so we were, um, things were explained to us as we went, which was really very, very nice. Um, and I remember um, when we did the repentance part of it, uh, it was very formal and very, um, really very beautiful. And after, after we finished it, we gathered and one of the Japanese uh, teachers that was there said, well, he said, now you're all clean. Now you're all pure. You've done repentance. But probably as soon as you walk out the door, you're going to um, do something that, you know, that you sort of set aside. And I, I remember thinking, oh, I'm not going to do that. I'm really going to pay attention. and. With probably within 10 minutes of the time I walked out the door, I was already uh, saying something that I had, you know, really not wanted to say. <laughs> so this, this repentance is something that um, we have to continually uh, look at ourselves. I feel very much like Zazen is, is the basis of repentance in this practice because that's when we really see, we can really see what, what our delusions are, uh, what our obstacles are. Uh, our, of course, our delusions are our obstacles. And um, also, there's a glimmer of uh, sh a shift, just a glimmer of a shift. And that kind of goes back to what this uh, teacher said, that, yes, we we go through this ceremony and we um, we let let go or set aside but um, it's gonna it's probably gonna come up again I do feel though that uh, there is that little shift keeps um, it, it kind of keeps us more aware of so that the next time that it comes up again, we can probably recognize it more easily. In his teaching about um, the Four Noble Truths, the Dalai Lama talks about karma. And he says, uh, with karma, for example, if you do something uh, out of anger, if you act out of anger, and then you say, oh, I shouldn't have done that. He says, that's good. Because 
you know, you recognize that what you've done and it helps you to sort of back away from it. But he says, you'll probably do it again and again and again and again. And then one day you will find yourself not acting out of that anger. And then perhaps you'll, you know, go back and do it again. But it's a, it's a kind of a, we have to be very diligent about this because those habits, those karmic habits that we have of behavior, um, they come from, um, they come from a lot of years of uh, trying to figure things out and being taught certain things and um, doing what we ha- what we think we have to do in order to protect ourselves. Uh, I was listening recently to um, talk about um, about beginning anew by a Vietnamese. Uh, woman, nun, who lives at Deer Park. And she talked about the tendency when we, when anger comes up to uh, fight or flee or freeze. And um, she points out that as children, uh, there were probably times when it actually protected us to do one of these things. But and so we kind of got it ingrained in our brain that this is this is something that we have to do. It becomes a kind of a habitual way of dealing with anger, what, whatever it is we chose to do or whichever things we've done in the past. And but she said, you know, as we get older, we can we can be thankful that we protected ourselves in that way because we're still here. But we've got to recognize, too, that this is this can become an obstacle for us, that this is not um, something that brings about freedom. It's just um, just something that we used, a tool kind of that we used at a certain time, but it's not particularly uh, useful. So I want to talk a little bit about this practice of beginning anew. Um, She's in, in a, uh, in this, in this beginning anew, I think I mentioned this at the beginning. This is a practice that was uh, developed by uh, Thich Nhat Hanh and the uh, Sangha, uh, the Order of Interbeing. I met Thich Nhat Hanh when I was at Tassajara because he came and taught us for 10 days. And so I, um, I was very um, affected by him, by his presence. So I have uh, followed up and done retreats with him in various places in the United States. I've been to Plum Village. And so I uh, I sort of saw this practice somebody, at one of the retreats I went to, somebody um, modeled it. They kind of showed us how it worked. And it was uh, two people that were in conflict with each other. So it was kind of interesting to... Uh, they were, it was a real, it was a real um, conflict. And so they were really exposed, uh, but they were showing us how it worked. And it's a four stage process. Um, and the first part is to, um, just a second, let me, uh, to express regret. Or no, the first, the first thing is to, it's called watering the flowers. In other words, 
um, expressing a gratitude for the kinds of things that we have uh, received or learned from the other person, or expressing gratitude for their better qualities, um, which is different from the traditional way that it's, it's done, even in Buddhism. Usually this watering the flowers, this expressing gratitude at the beginning is not part of it. If, if you look in the Vinaya, it really starts with uh, the expressing, this next one, which is expressing regret. And uh, the way that she explains it, the third stage is expressing things that have hurt you. And then the fourth stage is resolution. Um, This particular um, uh, ceremony is often used, and I have used it uh, in conflict and been guided through it uh, once or twice, and it's usually used to help resolve conflicts. I think that's what Thich Nhat Hanh designed it for. I don't know if you live in community there, but um, anybody who's lived in community uh, is, knows that it's uh, not easy to live with other people. Uh, and so conflicts come up. We used to have a, um, at Zen Center of Asheville, I lived at Zen Center of Asheville for about 10 years before uh, I started Great Tree. And uh, I immediately brought uh, Kilke Roberts in, Reverend Kilke Roberts in to uh, do well, we started by doing conflict resolution. Well, we started by doing mediation. I thought if we all learned how to do mediation, that we could mediate for each, for each other if, if a conflict came up. That didn't really work, but um, I did learn a lot. She came every year, and first we called it mediation, then we called it conflict resolution, then we called it compassionate communication, you know, because different people respond to different titles. But it was all basically the same thing. And one of the things that has really stuck with me about how she framed it. Uh, she was a professional mediator in the secular world, but she framed it in a Buddhist sense <clears throat> for us. And the way that she framed it was to talk about how we all create a sense of who we are and how we identify ourselves in certain ways. And I see that, I, I saw that happening. I have some I have a brother who's a lot younger than me. And so uh, I have some young nephews. Now they're um, 20 and 22, but they were uh, quite young. Uh, and at the time that I was, uh, you know, I was kind of following them as they went along. And I'd have conversations with them on the telephone. And generally speaking, my conversation, the conversations were very, very kind of stream of consciousness with you know little children, they don't necessarily think in some kind of a structure. But the older one, William, when he got into school and encountered more structure, he started thinking about things um, in in a more structured way. And so when I would talk to him, he would say. Uh, oh, uh, is that like, and he would try to relate it to something that he already knew. His little brother, who was not in school yet, if I had a conversation with him, if I asked him a question, he might be off on another subject. He didn't have any sense of 
of, uh, of putting it all together in a logical way. And it, it occurred to me that this is how we create a sense of ego. This is how we create a sense of who we, who we are. And we do it in order to be functional in the relative world. And, you know, like when you're in school, you have to adhere to some kind of structure. So your mind starts to develop a sense of identity. Who am I in relation to everybody else? And this is just a very natural thing that happens when we interact in society. But I feel like by the time we're 20 or 30 years old, already we have a pretty clear idea of who we are. So this sense of self is something that <clears throat> it gets kind of dense after a while. When I was at Tassajara, I used to go past the mirror in the baths and I'd see this bald person and I would say, oh, you look just like a baby. That happened to me several times. And one day when I was sitting in the Zendo, I, had, I was, you know, how sometimes you get involved in trying to solve a problem when you're sitting. Um, and I was sitting there and I was trying to solve this problem. And all of a sudden I came up with a, a solution and I rejected it. And I noticed what I did. And I said to myself, why did I reject that solution? And I had this kind of visual image of myself inside of a, a small, um, squ like square room you might say it was made out of concrete blocks and that that those that it was concrete of course i was about 35 when i was at tosahara it had become pretty solid by then and i realized that i identified myself in a certain way and that solution that i came up with was outside of that identity and that was the point at which i really understood how ego works in our lives, how we, if something doesn't fit into our understanding, it's very, very, very quickly we reject it. You know, Dogen Zenji says, every time we sit down, that is awakening. He says that again and again, even from the first, if it's your first time or your millionth time to sit, every time it is awakening. And one time I was talking about that and this person said to me, well, that's not true because I've meditated for a long time and I haven't ever experienced that. And I thought about that and I said, you know, I think it's because we judge very quickly whether something is real or not. And if it's not a familiar experience, we judge it as not real. If it's outside of our realm of understanding, we decide it's not, it's not real. And so we don't really know what awakening is. And so when we experience awakening, the first time, the fifth time, the 50th time, the hundredth time, the millionth time, maybe we, we judge it as not real. Although I'm firmly convinced that the more that we uh, do this practice, the more we experience it and the, the more familiar it becomes, the more likely we are to, to accept the fact that that is in fact true even though, as Dogen Zenji goes on to say, um, yeah, the, the grass and the, and the walls and the, everything speaks to us, the trees and everything speaks to us, but it's not something that's part of our conscious mind. 
And so we reject things that aren't part of our conscious mind. So this whole thing of how we create a sense of identity really plays into why we um, get involved in conflict. Because the way that I think about how things should be may not be the way that you think about how things should be. And, and yet there's something that drives us to think in that particular way. And the other aspect of that in, in the kind of conflict resolution that uh, Kyoki taught was that, um, sorry, I lost my train of thought. Oh, was that if you are in conflict with someone or even in conflict with yourself, maybe, and you keep asking the question, why is that important to you? Um, eventually, and if you listen and repeat, you know, you probably all know that method, uh, and try and understand the other person, why the other person is thinking in a particular way, what it comes down to always is some kind of fear, that there is some fear that is driving those positions. We're fear of losing something or fear of something happening or uh, maybe fear of losing a sense of who we are. Maybe it kind of um, dismantles our, um, our way of believing uh, what life is. And actually Zazen does that kind of dismantling too. And I think that's one of the reasons why some people have difficulty uh, continuing with the practice. So, um, This um, this repentance uh, opportunity is really a, a chance to see those things, to recognize those things that we adhere to for no particular reason, except we have some fear from a f- former time in our lives or something that someone has told us or some experience that we've had. So uh, it's actually a very freeing thing to acknowledge these things, but it's not easy. So uh, I, going back to this ceremony, I really um, love this uh, practice of uh, watering the flowers because it starts to... Um, it sort of softens the conflict if you're in a conflict with someone else. Uh, now, this, this uh, Vietnamese nun suggests that we do this, uh, first of all, that we have to start by doing this for ourselves, by doing these four steps uh, with ourselves and for ourselves. And she, so she uh, frames it in that way. Uh, she said, start with yourself, because as any of you, if you've practiced for a while, you may have noticed, I noticed this uh, in the course of my practice, is that if I was angry about something, other people were affected by my anger, even if I didn't express it, although I have a very hard time not showing my anger. But, uh, and I've noticed over the years that um, we really are much more affected by each other's moods than we realize. And we have different ways of coping with uh, how we're affected. I even had an experience when I was at 
uh, Hoshinji, where um, we were, I was sitting on a ton, a ton is, do you have tons there? They're uh, platforms that you sit on. Yes, you do? Okay, yeah. Well, I was sitting on a ton and I, I was, um, there was a, a lay woman who had come to Sashin and she was sitting between me and one of the other nuns that was a resident there. And I, when she was, I was having a really hard time sitting still, which is kind of a problem for me anyway. I'm kind of a wiggly person, but I was trying really hard. I, I was feeling agitated. My whole body was feeling kind of really squirmy. And I was having a hard time just sitting there and being calm. And, you know, you try everything, you try, you know, taking some deep breaths and I tried several things. And then all of a sudden, one thing popped into my mind. I, I thought, I wonder if this person next to me is agitated and I'm getting it from her. Uh, and then I quickly dismissed that. I thought, oh, you know, I'm blaming somebody else. And, but the very next period, she disappeared and I calmed down. And I didn't think too much of it until I ran into her after the uh, sashin. And I said, oh, I thought you had left. And she said, no, I just moved uh, out to the outer room, the gaitan, because um, I was just having such a hard time settling down. And it really it was very clear to me um, from that kind of experience, I've had other experiences like that, how much we affect each other, just our presence, you know. If, you, if you've met people like Tignan Han or Katagiri Roshi, or I was affected by Katagiri Roshi's presence. That's, I didn't want to practice Zen. I thought Zen was too hard. I'd been introduced to it a couple times. And, you know, sitting still for me, was, it's just, it's still a challenge after 45 years. <laughs> so um, I wasn't very interested in Zazen. Uh, but I sort of got pulled into um, a situation where I heard Roshi speak and I, I just kind of said, uh, you know, I got to learn how to meditate from this guy because there's something about him that, that you know, I want to cultivate in myself. So we do affect others and we need to recognize that and um, take on some of these practices, I think, for ourselves before we uh, extend, try to extend them to others, because if we don't understand them um, uh, deeply, then we really can't help others. So this thing uh, of watering the flowers, um, she suggests that uh, we just find ways to say thank you to ourselves. Um, she said we should, she suggests that we say thank you to ourselves three times a day to remember um, the things that about ourselves that we're grateful for. And, you know, it kind of, this whole watering the flowers can kind of put you in a, a good mood. But um, when I tried to do this practice, I found it somewhat difficult. It's sort of like um, patting yourself on the back. And uh, in, in Catholicism, that's not very humble. I was, when I was a Catholic, I was always accused of, by my teachers of not being humble enough. Uh, so there's this idea of humility, which um, 
I'm not sure that this is what was what was being told to me, but this is the way I understood it is that, you know, you got to kind of put yourself down in order to be humble. So I don't know whether this is true of everyone, but I do think that it's always it's very useful for us to try this practice <clears throat> of thanking ourselves. And I would like to take a, f- a few minutes and just uh, ring the bell and take a few deep breaths and let them out slowly and quietly in order to calm our bodies. And uh, think about some things that you want to thank yourself for. I'm going to uh, turn on original sound so that you can hear the full sound of the bell. But if I forget to turn it off, people tell me that it muddles my voice. So somebody please speak up and tell me, uh, and I'll turn it off. As I breathe in, I send love and gratitude to my body. As I breathe out, I smile tenderly to my body. Thank you, thank you, thank you. This nun uh, emphasizes the body a lot. She says, she, she points out that we, our body can get caught in these these states of, um, you know, flight, 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 fright, fright, flight, or freezing, that we, that our body can come stuck in it. And so taking the time to calm our bodies is, you know, also calming our minds because our body and mind are not two separate things. So as I breathe in, I send love and gratitude to my body. This is something I think culturally that we don't pay enough attention to. One of the things that I'm trying to emphasize at Great Tree Temple is body awareness. Because I, I think there's a tendency, uh, and, and I don't think this is just an a American culture thing, I think that... Uh, I encountered it in Japan. There's a tendency to kind of push your body rather than um, really tuning into what your body needs. My teacher died at the age of 62, and I saw what he was doing. He was pushing his body with caffeine, with coffee, for a really long time. And the first thing that, that, the first cancer that was discovered was discovered in his adrenal gland which uh, they removed, and the surgeon told us that it was the size of a grapefruit and that, um, you know, most of it 
it was mostly uh, cancer, mostly malignant. So this is what happens when we push our bodies. Um, we we uh, destroy our bodies. And I also, but I also believe that um, if we become aware of how to calm our bodies, how to tune into our bodies, that it gives another dimension to our understanding of our thinking. Uh, because our thinking, you know, the things that, the places that where we get stuck comes from the way we think. And so it opens up a whole nother world. So I think, you know, the kinds of pains and things that we discover when we do a lot of zazen, particularly like sashin or something, um, I think it can be very useful for us to not try to push through, but to try to understand um, what the pain is, whether it's a kind of pain that is, um, you know, maybe helpful in uh, opening up our bodies or whether it's the kind of pain that if we push through it, it's going to harm our bodies. I think that's an important thing to recognize. and. Um, so this first step is, she says, thank, thank yourself. Thank yourself for um, those good qualities. And, and, you know, this is also an opportunity to strengthen uh, the good qualities that we have. And also to thank our bodies for um, supporting our lives, for be being our lives and the things that our bodies do to help us. So the second... Um, the second step of beginning anew is to express regrets. Um, she explains it as to say, I'm sorry. She talks about how it's difficult in Asian cultures to say you're sorry, especially to someone whom you perceive a children or people that are in a lesser position than you. Um, and she said, you know, people in the West are always saying, I'm sorry, and that's a good thing. But uh, I sort of feel like um, it's just as difficult <laughs> to really acknowledge the um, things that we've done and to say, I'm sorry uh, in our culture. Because even though we may say, I'm sorry, you know, it, it can be a very superficial kind of thing. And so, uh, what she's suggesting is that those we say many things to ourselves uh, that are negative. Uh, I remember um, I stayed with my aunt uh, for about a couple of weeks one time when she was very ill. She was about 96. And we thought she was dying. And uh, But she was still moving around slowly, but she was moving around. And I stayed there and she had a, she had a oxygen, you know, the kind that you put in your nose and, and she, it had a long tube on it. So when she got up to, went to go to the bathroom at night, I worried that she was going to get tangled up and trip on that. And so uh, every time she'd get up, I, I would jump up and go to, to help her. And she would say, Oh, you know, you shouldn't get up. I'm fine. I've got it all figured out. And, and so I would just do it kind of, I, I couldn't help but wake up when I heard her get up. And so I kind of hide in the shadows and, and watch her to make sure she was okay. And one of the things that she kept saying to herself was um, she, she kind of beat herself up. Oh, you, oh, you're being so stupid. If, if, if she wasn't, if it wasn't going smoothly or if she was doing something um, 
that wasn't working for her. Oh, she would say she was so stupid. And I, she was raised by my great grandmother and I could hear my great grandmother's voice uh, in, in her saying it, just it, the way that she said it uh, was very familiar to me. And I, uh, I think that this is the kind of thing that um, we carry with us. These are the kinds of mental habits uh, and mental beating up that we do. And so um, the suggestion here is to simply uh, tell ourselves uh, we're sorry for um, the things that we regret, that we, we tell ourselves that make us feel bad about ourselves. I'm stupid or why, you know, I've failed. I, I, I'm, not, I'm not as good at, you know, comparing ourselves with other people. Um, so uh, let's take a minute and, and do this again with the sound of the bell, taking deep breaths in order to calm your body, let it out slowly and quietly. If you make noise when you let it out, it, it's not as calming, I found. So uh, let it out as slowly and quietly as you can. And uh, uh, tell yourself, see if you can find uh, something that you tell yourself that um, makes you feel bad about yourself. And, and you can tell yourself that you're sorry. Breathing in, I'm aware that I just said something unkind to myself. Breathing out, I'm so sorry. Uh, one of the things that uh, she says is we need to just sit quietly or lie down and let the earth absorb the energy. And when I heard her say this, I thought, of course, immediately I thought of Zazen. But this whole idea of letting the earth absorb the energy, that relationship that we have with the earth. I studied Tai Chi with someone one time who used to, he'd have us walk around the room and feel the connection of our feet with the earth. And he always emphasized um, Bringing the, bringing the energy of the earth into our movements, bringing it up through our body and into our movements. And I think a feeling that connection with the earth also helps, helps us connect with uh, the interdependent nature of life, the, um, all the beings that we're connected with. The earth kind of absorbs the energy of all beings and and shares it uh, equally, shares it among all of us. So this is a way to connect with, with the earth. And we can do this sitting or lying down. We do something here called Alexander Technique, which I call Body Zen, um, because it's, it's a way of becoming aware of our body habits. And by becoming aware of them, we can learn how to release them. 
And <clears throat> FM Alexander suggested that um, for a few minutes during the day, throughout the day, that we just lie down and pay attention to our connection with the ground and release our bodies, um, notice where our bodies are, are uh, tense. Uh, and lying down is a good way to do it because it's a, it's a very relaxed posture. But I think over time, you know, in Zazen, uh, people don't understand how I can sleep during Zazen, but I think over time, uh, we, do, we can relax in Zazen posture to the point where we can fall asleep. Um, and I, I, so I think that we can also feel that connection with the earth uh, in Zazen. And if we do, it's a very stabilizing kind of connection. So the second step is to say I'm sorry to ourselves. And I do believe that just like with watering the flowers, it, it encourages us. Uh, saying sorry to ourselves helps us recognize some of those patterns, those habits that we have of putting ourselves down. And maybe they don't have such a hold on us when we recognize them. The third step of beginning anew is to express hurt. Um, that's something that someone did or said about us that can cause us pain or something that we did or said to ourselves that can cause us pain. I think this is very similar to the other uh, one, but it's taking it from a different angle. Um, I, uh, I had an experience, <clears throat> again, at Hoshinji Monastery. Where I, there was this American uh, monk that I used to, uh, we had a very good friendship, and we used to talk a lot about a lot of stuff. And <clears throat> one day uh, I noticed that I was kind of picking apart everything that he was doing. You know, a lot of the things that we did at the monastery were done in silence. And so I noticed it when we were sitting down to a meal. We weren't uh, eating in the meditation hall. This was a more informal meal, but it was silent. And I noticed that I was criticizing him for almost everything he was doing. And I suddenly when I noticed it, I thought, this is ridiculous. Why am I doing this? Why am I doing all this criticizing? And I know I noticed I had been doing it for a couple of days. And as soon as I noticed it, though, I noticed that I, there was some anger. I was feeling angry toward him. And as soon as I noticed the anger, it I immediately I remembered something that he had said to me that had hurt my feelings. And so I I have recognized very often that. Um, the basis of a lot of anger comes from uh, having our feelings hurt, having someone say something to us or hurting our own feelings, you know, um, giving ourselves these messages. So, um, and another thing she points out is we act like things don't matter, but they do matter. And uh, that, to me, is a very important point because uh, it's very easy, I think, to get into a mode of acting like things don't matter, like it's okay. And it's a kind of a pretense that we do. Uh, and that pretense is, is a form of delusion. 
And so in Zazen, you know, I've found that sometimes when it's uh, time to do Zazen, uh, I have thought, I've noticed this in the past, that I've thought, oh, I don't need to do Zazen today. I'm I'm good, you know, but it's time to do Zazen, you know. And, and so I go and I do it. And immediately I notice a delusion that, um, so, I, you know, this whole thing of telling myself, uh, oh, I'm good. I don't need this today is it's kind of become a signal for me that uh, there's some kind of hidden delusion there that I'm not dealing with. And I think we do that with hurt when our feelings are hurt rather than allow ourselves to feel the pain of the hurt and come to terms with maybe what's behind that pain, uh, why that hurt us. Uh, we, we say, Oh, I'm okay. This is okay. So for a moment, I want to do this same little exercise and take a few deep breaths. Um, and just see if you can identify some emotion in you or some, something that caused some kind of pain. And just uh, take a deep breath. You may have noticed that if you were able to identify some something that hurt you, that you you can still feel the pain in your body, and um, that's I find that um, in zazen when I when those kinds of things come up, um, it has become. It, it used to be that I would think, oh, I you know I'm feeling sad and I. I, or I'm feeling angry or something. So uh, I, you know, Zazen, it's, I want to leave, you know, I want to quit. But I have found over time that those are the times when we have the best opportunity to, to really go deeply and to really see these things and to just see them and to feel the pain and to feel the, um, to recognize the fears. It's, it's not just a, a, a mindless practice. It's not, it's a practice of learning how to be free from these things, not letting these things have a hold on us. Um, when I came back from Hoshinji, um, I had a very bad um, feeling about ego. You know, I wanted to get rid of my ego. And um, we had a practice period in Minnesota. And I, uh, I said to Katagiri Roshi, we had a, a tea, a Chosan tea. And I, I said, um, what is ego? And I expected him to say, oh, it's, it's this terrible thing. <laughs> but he says, he said, ego is our life force. And I really thought about that a lot. And I realized that it, it's what keeps us alive. If we didn't have some sense, some structure, uh, we wouldn't be able to survive in the relative, we wouldn't be able to survive. We wouldn't cook, we wouldn't eat, we wouldn't have any motivation. So it's our life force, it's what keeps us alive. Um, but at the same time, 
a lot of times we don't realize how we've identified ourselves. And so I, I always think of it as ego kind of dragging us around. But if we're aware of how ego is working in our lives, if we're aware of how we identify with things and how we have these habitual ways of thinking, then we can be free from them. We, we can choose, we can make choices and not have, not be dragged around by something that um, we're not aware of. So this is, these, all of these, you know, they're called mindfulness practices in the Thich Nhat Hanh tradition, uh, but they're just basic uh, awarenesses that help us to become free. Uh, and when we can become free, then we can help others become free. So the last step of beginning anew is that we come up with some kind of res resolution. And I always like New Year's time because it's a time to sort of think about some things that I want to work on. Um, but the way that she talks about it is this resolution is something that helps us to not feed our addictions, our addictions to our habitual ways of being. It, we recognize um, not only what our addictions are, but at the same time, we recognize what, what we can do to change that. Um, when people come to me and they say, oh, I'm doing Zazen wrong because I'm just thinking all, my mind is just thinking all the time. I'm just doing too much thinking. What can I do about it? And I, I say to them, how many times during a normal day do you notice that you're thinking too much? And usually the person will say, well, you know, I'm usually too busy to notice it. So I saw that that's awakening to be able to see that. Uh, but what we usually do when we see something like, oh, my mind is too busy, or we notice something about the way we're thinking that, you know, is not, it's not helpful. It's not wholesome. We want to do something. What can I do? And that's all that's doing is just creating more thinking or creating more angst about the whole thing. But actually, that moment when we notice it, we're, there is a freedom. We're free of it. Of course, it might come back if it's, a, if it's an ingrained habit. But not only are we letting go of it in that moment, but we're also awakening to what we need to do to change it. And it may be a long process. Uh, this awakening to what we need to do is not a conscious thing, particularly. I often tell the story about we used to do a New Year's sashin every year. It was a seven-day sashin in Minnesota. And I went to all the sashins. Uh, we had monthly sashins. And so at, at the sashin one year, I noticed something that I was doing that I wanted to not be doing. Uh, and so that year, I kind of committed myself to work on that particular thing. And I got really discouraged because nothing I was doing was seemed to be working. And I kind of forgot about it about halfway through the year. And I went to the sashin, that same sashin the next year, and I noticed the same thing. I was doing the same thing. And I thought, oh, no, I'm still doing this, you know. So I started working on it again, started trying to figure out ways to change it. And then that it came back the next year, saw it again. And I, and I, you know, I started to get really discouraged about 
you know, being able to change things. But one year, I was sitting in the same sashim, and I noticed that I wasn't doing it. And I thought about that for a long time, and I thought, what, what changed it? What changed? And what I came to is that I think that by recognizing things that we do, ways that we think, these habitual patterns that are not particularly wholesome, that are not particularly helpful, but by recognizing them, we start a kind of process of recognizing all the things that um, are that play into making that happen. It's not just I'm doing this. It's I'm doing this, and there are all I've been doing it for all these years, and there's all these things that I have to kind of unpack before I can really let go of it fully. Some things you can let go of more quickly, but other things just keep coming up and coming up. But uh, Zazen is a good way to keep us work processing this stuff, even though it's not a conscious processing. It, it, we're doing it, we're processing it. And to have faith in that is, is really important. Um, and so this resolution, I think, comes very naturally uh, out of this process of acknowledging some of the things that are watering our flowers, acknowledging some of the things that we do uh, to hurt ourselves, uh, really getting in touch with the pain itself. And I think the resolution is, is just, it comes about very naturally. And maybe it comes about in pieces. Maybe it doesn't come about just... Um, all at once. Uh, maybe it takes time for it to come about, but that we, maybe the resolution takes different forms. But um, I think the resolution is, is very, uh, it comes from this process. Um, Kyoki always said that uh, with conflict resolution, that if you could uh, really hear each other and get down to the basic fears that the solution was there, that you didn't have to come up with some ideas for it. And she did <clears throat> conflict resolution in Nebraska with, um, as a professional with farmers and banks that were foreclosing on the farmers. And she said sometimes they had to check the guns at the door. So you know that it was a very kind of a volatile situation. But um, she said uh, at the end, uh, if they really went through the whole process and everyone could really say everything they had to say, and there was uh, a mutual understanding that came about through these these conversations uh, that they didn't have to come up with some kind of a resolution, although they did, but it was very natural. It was very clear what that would be. And I think that that can happen uh, partly through Zazen, but I think that this kind of... Um, full moon ceremony, this kind of beginning a new ceremony um, allows us to articulate it in a way that um, we have to become more clear about it. And one of the other things that I find about this kind of process is that we can become more compassionate towards others when we know when we hear that those people 
that the people that we're living with, people that we're annoyed by, when we re recognize that they are trying, they're really trying um, because they, they say, well, I'm this is something I'm working on. When we did this uh, setting aside, which is, I think, another way of saying repentance, when we did the setting aside um, uh, suggested by the, this Tibetan monk <clears throat> at this monastic gathering, we sat and we, we got into groups of four and each person could say something. We didn't have to say anything. And I was kind of nervous about it because I didn't really know these people. And I thought, oh, you know, I probably won't say anything. But the so three other people went first. And one of them in my group was the monk that had suggested it. So he'd already done it quite a bit. And each person, when I heard them say something, I, I identified with what they were saying. I thought, oh, yeah, I do that. Oh, yeah, I do that. That's something I want to set aside. And I noticed that when I said what I had to say, they were all shaking their heads. <laughs> you know, so it's also a good process of us of bringing us together in our struggles, you know, so that we recognize that we're not the only ones that are struggling with this.